Welcome, Quest for You fans. I'm Janine, and this is my podcast, Quest for You. Today, I have a treat for you. And this is not just because we're going to talk about food, but certainly it's part of it. Sarah Germany and I sat down over Zoom a couple of weeks ago, and you will hear in that conversation that she had me speechless. I've heard many life-transformative stories over the years, but Sarah's story is unique in a special way. There is a thread that weaves through her life, and it's called passion for food. This passion, however, at the same time created many problems for Sarah and for the people that she observed around her throughout her life. Now, most of us, we tackle personal challenges by finding answers and trying to address the problem for ourselves. Sarah did that as well, but she didn't stop there. In this interview, in this quest story, which is a true quest story, Sarah shares her story with food. And it's not, as you might think, a story about losing weight, although Sarah did accomplish that and quite successfully. But more so, it's a story about dietary transformation through education and communication. And Sarah is an expert on both. I've had my share with dietary experiments over the years, but I have never heard or read anything as comprehensive as what Sarah shares in this conversation. She truly understands food because she lives food. She cooks food, she grows food, she experiments with food, and she educates others about it. Sarah made food her mission because she knows that at its core, that food can make us sick, but can also heal us. And her message, as you will hear, is very clear. It's not about denying ourselves, as so many people tell us these days. She loves food, and she wants people to enjoy the foods that they love. Her work is about redefining food, opening our minds to a world of food that many people know only a very small part of because they've never been exposed to all this food that we have accessible to us. And she takes that work into the communities that need it most. Communities like here in East Oakland, where she also lives. So you don't want to miss this enlightening and impactful conversation. We talk about okra. We talk about fun food. And you need to listen to find out what that is. We talk about McDonald's french fries. And we talk about how to get kids to eat veggies. Or at least to try them. This was the most comprehensive conversation covering all matters of food that I have ever had. Sarah is hilarious. You can hear me cracking up. As a forewarning, the audio is sadly not the best, but I tried to beef it up as much as my limited editing capabilities allowed me to. There are a few minor sections that aren't good to hear, but you will get the message overall. And after you listen, Sarah and I would like for you to forward this interview, to share it with your loved ones, your colleagues, people that you think and know need to hear this interview. Sarah's work is so critical and we need to help spread the word. So please forward this episode, share it with at least two people that you know and encourage them to share it as well. Sarah's current project is called Building Bridges, Food and Conversation. You can learn more about this project and support her by going to Instagram, 
and her handle is the Food Commonwealth. It's all one word. You can also check out Sarah and her work via tasteandtexture.com, all one word, tasteandtexture.com. And I will link to both her Instagram and her website in the show notes. Also, Sarah speaks about her book that shares her amazing journey with food. And she's in the process of looking for a publisher. So if you can help her with some advice and even just point her into a specific direction based on your knowledge and experience, please reach out to either me or Sarah directly. So I give you this interview. I want you to enjoy it. But more than that, I would like for you to learn from it, to forward it and to allow yourself to be inspired by it, as is the case for all my episodes that I release, where I always encourage you, take some action. Progress comes from taking action. And all the conversations, all the quest stories that I bring you are examples of people taking massive action. And Sarah is one of the best examples. Your action can start by supporting projects like hers. So my friends, with much love, I leave you this interview to enjoy over the weekend or whenever you have a chance. Stay safe and please, maybe cook something healthy this weekend. Much love and I'll talk to you soon. And here is Sarah Germany. Sarah, welcome to my podcast, to this interview. I'm so happy to have you here. Finally, we were able to connect and I'm so excited to dive into your project, your story. You have an amazing background that I'm reading here on your website, tasteandtexture.com. Introduce yourself to me a little bit because you have done so many things, cooking, You're a chef, you do social work, you're passionate about your community. Tell me a little bit more about yourself. So yeah, I'm a chef and an educator. Um, I'm a parent, I'm a wife, I'm an East Oakland resident, uh, I'm a writer, and I am a struggling gardener. Those would be all of my definitions. I think the two that probably challenged me the most are parenting and gardening. Uh, they probably go hand in hand in terms of like, keeping me balanced and keeping me uh, creative. But in terms of being an educator, a chef, and an East Oakland resident, uh, that's sort of how I've fused my passion and my work life together. My wife and I live here in the East. Uh, she is a former executive director of a foster care organization. What our goal was when we decided to settle in East Oakland Uh, and sort of become property owners here was to really invest in our community, right? Not just in terms of, of living here, but we both work here. We're sort of really entrenched in what happens. Through that process, the Food Commonwealth, where wellness is the new black, was sort of created. And what that is, is it really is an in-home nutritional-based program that's designed to help folks get well, stay well, and learn some core skills around sustainability, particularly for folks who are challenged economically, who live in food deserts, who are managing, well, histories of medical challenges, things like obesity, high blood pressure, heart disease, high cholesterol, gout, diabetes, all those debilitating things that tends to uh, saturate communities of color. Uh, and I believe have a longer history that's associated with poverty, uh, living in communities that don't just have needed resources. 
and people survive, but they're not surviving in a way that supports longevity. And so the Commonwealth really was created to do that. Um, I, for one, come from a Southern Christian family. Uh, my family is from Mississippi originally. When I was 20 years old, I experienced uh, having to go to 11 funerals in 13 months. And every single person in my family died from a health-related issue. This was not a drive-by. These were not drug-related issues. These were core issues related to diet, lack of exercise, the lack of continual medical care, right? Having emergency room care be your only medical process and not having that those be annual or biannual visits. I'm 50 now. So I learned very early on um, in a very hard and a very traumatic way that diet and exercise was just as fatal as bullets. Right. And in some communities, poverty related obesity was detrimental to the African-American community. And so I had some choice. Right. I had some choice in terms of what I could do with that. I spent a lot of time in denial. One of the things about having to experience these many funerals when you're in your 20s, which included my parents, was that it, it changes sort of how you believe things could happen. My initial focus was on community organizing. Right, getting back into my community and sort of really understanding uh, what was happening at that point. Uh, it was the early like 1990s and HIV and AIDS was killing everybody in the Bronx. Uh, so my first work was around HIV and AIDS education. My sister would then become HIV infected. And so that would trigger another level of social activism and discovering that. It was when my sister died that I would then discover that I had high blood pressure. Uh, I had not dealt with my own obesity issues, right? Uh, so now I was confronted with my own hypocrisy. I was like 363 pounds at the time. I was told I had high diabetes and that I was basically on track for an early grade if I didn't get it together. Uh, so that was my first major personal wake-up call. Hmm. And then what I did, uh, because I'm Southern, and I'm Christian at heart, and food is like everything. It's in my DNA. There was no way in hell I was living a life that didn't include fried chicken, <laughs> auntie's potato salad, and macaroni. So it wasn't going to happen in any of these traditional ways. I wasn't counting anybody's points. I wasn't doing any of that. So it really required a, a complete and total self-transformation from the inside out. And what I did was I, I prayed a lot. And I used all of the strengths and talents that I had to relearn how to cook everything I had grown up loving to eat and recreating it with less sugar, less salt, and less fat. And I made myself my own test subject. And so throughout that process, I lost 163 pounds. I have kept it off. Congratulations. Uh, you know. Thank you. <laughs> It's, it's, it's my trophy. Um, and so I laugh because I have a 16-year-old daughter. And when I look at my daughter and realize that that's exactly how much weight that I was carrying on my body, it's almost amazing to realize that I have lost literally another human. But I think when we think about that, right, because we don't think about what weight is and how much we're carrying it and what it physically looks like and what it feels like, um, this is a part of my work and my testimony is to get people to understand that it's possible. A, you don't have to go and invest thousands of dollars in a weight loss program and take all these pills and you don't have to be in any kind of affluent community. You just have to get some tools and some education that we didn't have. And it's almost like looking at the entire miseducation 
of our school system as it pertains to our cultural history or economic history or whatever. It's the same thing with our heart history. Right? No one grew up in an American school system where you learn like nutrition. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I remember public school lunches. They were they were allegedly balanced, right? But you got food out of a can, you got things that were frozen and prepackaged that were high in sodium, high in fat, high in sugar. And for a lot of kids, this was your primary food source, right? So if you're getting empty calories and empty nutrition, or you're getting a high saturated diet that's in sugar, salt, and fat, then those are the things that you crave. Mm-hmm. And then those are subsidized uh, by fast food restaurants and whatever. And so when you're in communities that don't have markets, that don't have fresh produce growing, and these are their primary food sources, you wind up with communities that are completely unhealthy and who are battling poverty-related obesity. They've eaten a lifetime of empty calories loaded with things that they can't digest. Their body is literally storing light luggage. There's no outlets for physical exercise. It's not safe to be outside. It's not clean to be outside. And so then they're living off a media-infused life. So, So my goal is to get into the media stream. If I can't get folks outside, can I get inside? Can I get on your phone? Can I get on your tablet? Can I get on your computer screen? And can we cook together? And can we drop off a box of fresh produce at your door uh, so that you can cook with us, right? We're not really asking folks to do anything else but use what's in your house and hopefully take what we can provide, provided we, you know, we and we, we work on donations. Uh, we're working in conjunction with the Castlemont Farm, which is right here in East Oakland. Uh, it's a one-acre farm that's really supported by the students that go to the high school um, in conjunction with the teachers and the faculties that work there. It's an amazing program. Uh, but there's a whole lot of organically grown local fresh fruit produce right here right here in East Oakland uh, where we don't have supermarkets. And a lot of people don't know that they can actually join the farm and get a box of produce each week in this, as part of the CSA program. Mm-hmm. So some of that is getting that information out uh, for the folks who have no idea what to do with things that are grown locally. That's where the Commonwealth comes in. You know, we're starting this Instagram uh, Zoom thing. We're figuring it out as we go along. But people can tap in once a week for 30 minutes and see what we're doing with what we got at the farm that week. If they need inspiration or ideas, uh, local organizations can partner with us uh, to run a monthly series right now. Uh, we're working with a child care center here in East Oakland that also has an offsite in downtown Oakland, uh, Lotus Bloom Child Care Center. We'll be doing a monthly in-home virtual cooking class with their families and their children. We're hoping to get back into the public libraries, which is where we would have been this July uh, had we not been hit with COVID. Uh, we do a smoothie workshop there and a family dinner meal there. Uh, so hopefully we can get those things sort of re-energized through social media and our social media platforms. I want to ask you, because you have like an incredible resume. You are a trained chef. You went to culinary school. Not culinary school. You didn't go to culinary school. I am self-trained. You basically taught yourself these skills on your journey to start to eat healthier and to lose that, all that weight. Is that how you got there? Um, it's a part of it. So I always wanted to go to culinary school. 
but it was not like a passion that my parents or my grandparents were in support of. Mm. Um, my mother was very adamant about the fact that her daughter was not going to be in anybody's kitchen cooking, um, which is a very interesting. <laughs> cooking for someone. <laughs> She didn't want you to cook for anyone. Yeah, exactly. You know, but, you know, my my parents came from a very different era, and so you know, in the South and in the '60s and the '70s. Uh, people, black women who cooked in kitchens were never title chefs, right? They were anything but. And so, and even today, women have a whole lot of flack. Like we're not, we don't hold the same levels of, of torches uh, in the kitchen as, as our male counterparts though. But for me, what was important was that I never lost that passion, right? And so what would happen is I would go through uh, undergraduate and grad school uh, twice, And then I would start managing a literacy program in the Times Square area of New York City, uh, where we were doing literacy education for homeless youth who were living on the streets in, in New York City. And from what I knew from having studied sociology and having a degree in sociology, the, the, the ridiculousness of what we were trying to do, we were trying to educate folks who were showing up having come from maybe not having slept all night or whatever, Um, and they were young people. They were all under the age of 21. And so it became incredibly important that they have a hot meal. And so one of the things that I started advocating for was to be able to get food and get food in. And then I made it a point of educating myself on what was the best food to offer populations of people who were nutritionally deprived. Uh, so that's sort of where uh, the love of food and the nutritional education sort of melted. Then it would move to my sister getting sick and then that became a whole new education about nutrition and what nutrition could do for a body that was immunodeficient mm -hmm. uh, and that was a two-year-long struggle and then we sort of got her back to functioning and sort of being able to self-care for a while and then that was sort of the eye-opener for me that nutrition was key right mm -hmm. nutrition was a key factor in living well and living long uh and living strong uh And then what happened is I would take a job that would allow me to fuse both of that. So I took a job that allowed me to run an employment training program for folks coming out of incarceration, which allowed me to use all my educational training skills and my sociology skills. They were in a culinary training program. And so they had to learn all of the skills necessary to work in the food service industry. And so I taught myself so I could teach them. And then that's sort of where the, the, the melt came. And then I got to study with other chefs as an intern as I studied and created my craft. And then I decided to take it internationally and traveled across like five countries and show people all you over did. the world to kind of make it like a thing thing. Wow. And then back to the U.S. and took what I knew from my grandmother's kitchen and what I had learned through my travels and my studies. And I created what became Taste and Texture, which was a usable nutritional program, which was taking traditional Southern and Caribbean food and re-engineering it without the sugar, the salt, and the fat. So let's just pause there because I want to highlight the fact that you have done something very incredible. You have come from a background where you observed a lot of problems, social problems, economic problems, poverty, all those things, you have a passion, on the other hand, for food and cooking, and then you combined that passion with trying to solve 
the communal problems that you have seen and have grown up with. And to me, that's amazing in itself already. And you have not just at some point paused and say, oh, let me combine this. You've kind of like, looks like your path, your journey has always led you kind of through both areas at the same time. And you've just never lost sight of one or the other. It's a journey that's a part of what I believe is my food DNA, right? I mean, one of the things that I think is incredible is that the history of African-American food in America holds with it the title of soul food. And with that, we have learned to deconstruct all of the hearts of that diet, right? But what I like to remind people of is that the traditional Southern soul food diet came into realization because of what the body needed in response to the work that was being conducted, right? So when you're in a work environment, uh, you know, forced (laughs) as it was, and you're forced to to generate 4,000 calories a day, you're burning 4,000 calories a day just based on the labor that your body is ensuing, you can have a diet that has 5,500 calories a day in it. (laughs) The balance of nature is there because you really are only having a 1,500-calorie diet a day. When we move that community into an assumed mainstream system, but without any different economic resources or any any different land resources to create any different balance or any different educational information to understand that your body does things differently and your diet doesn't change, but your lifestyle does. Yeah. The only thing that happens is your body becomes a storage system, right? But I went to one of New York's better colleges. You know, I went to a four-year private school. I thought I had, you know, I had great jobs. I went to graduate school. I was probably 35 the first time I actually read a food label and understood it. Mm. I mean, when we really start to deconstruct what's in our diet, and understand the stability factor of if something is put into a food to allow it to sit on a shelf or in a box for three, five, eight years, how long does it take your body to process it? Mm-hmm. And then I think for me, and I think this is probably true of most Americans, right? Understanding that, like, how many portions are actually in something where we eat the whole can? I think my biggest meltdown, and there's a therapist in New York. Uh, who can attest to this, <laughs> was understanding that a can of tuna was supposed to feed, like, three people. <laughs> like, you're supposed to get three, two, at least two and a half sandwiches out of a can of tuna fish. It's like, in what world is that, <laughs> right? But when I realized that, and realized that, oh, okay, so wait. I eat a can of tuna. It has like a hard boiled egg in it. It's got all this other stuff. It's got some mayonnaise and you put it on a breast. So when I realized that like my lunch was probably more calories than I was supposed to have in a day or that 
equivalent of three meals and one sandwich just based on the understanding of caloric intake and fat and sugar. It doesn't change how much food you can eat. Mm -hmm. It changes the kind of food you eat, right? Mm -hmm. Because now if I actually go to the market and buy a frozen tuna steak or a piece of tuna, I get the same amount of fish. It just hasn't sat in the can with all this other stuff in it and then caused all these other problems in my body. And then I don't need as many other things to flavor it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So under helping folks understand how to create that balance, debunking two really key myths. I think the two biggest myths for me personally was understanding that as an African-American born in the Mount Haven section of the South Bronx, I still had the right to eat well. Nutrition and wellness was not a white thing, that it was actually a right that I intrinsically had just like a white American. That was an amazing thing uh, because growing up in a communities where everything that you have is different and you see it differently and it's always presented to you differently and then you eat food that you're unfamiliar with that has no flavor and you associate it with the different ethnic group or a different economic group and you dismiss it as opposed to re-identifying it for yourself and finding some comfort with it is one of the things that I teach. I love it when amazing. I can introduce young people to asparagus and cauliflower. <laughs> But just, just even how you just explained all that, the historical aspect of how you eat, the soul food, like I I have never heard anyone explain this like this. It's amazing. I mean, my eyes are just wide open. It it explains so much. And I imagine this must help the African-American community. They may not even understand that correlation between their diet and weight gain which is only one aspect i get that there is many more aspects there is access to food in poorer communities there is poverty that doesn't allow you to buy maybe organic groceries availability of food access to food same thing it's there's i think it's a multitude of problems but just the way you started explaining this to me is amazing which brings me to the next step I think you, it sounds like, made a conscious decision to move into East Oakland, into the community where you observe all these problems that you've seen way back when you grew up. And now you're trying to make a difference in that community. I mean, I'm from New York originally, right? When we moved out, when I moved out here, uh, we were living in Rockbridge, which is a lovely, lovely Yes, it is. <laughs> um, I love Rockbridge. <laughs> it's a nice place to visit. When I started working and when I started meeting the kids who were coming into my education programs, you know, we ran a program called Grow Oakland, which was gaining resources and opportunities for work. And our primary group of young people were ages 17 to 21. And after working with these kids for a couple of years and just kind of seeing where they lived and what was happening uh, and just sort of having to sit with my own consciousness. I honestly and truly believe in my heart of hearts that if everybody who grew up in the hood, whether you live in the, your same hood or not, but if you grew up in the hood and you have the capacity 
to live in a neighborhood, if somebody doesn't stay in the hood, <laughs> right? Folks that don't have the capacity or the reach to have the kinds of educational opportunities that I've had or the travel opportunities that I've had will never know that they can. Very important point. And so for me, I remember I went to a junior high school and there was a teacher there. Her name is Deborah Simmons. And she was somebody who still lived in the Bronx. She had grown up in the projects across the street from our junior high school. And she was probably the most amazing person I'd ever met at that point in my life. And she drove this raggedy ass, <laughs> old burgundy regal. And every day I'd be like, won't you get a real job? Won't you get a real car? You went to college. Like, why are you still in these raggedy ass streets? Like, leave. And she was like, you leave. I'm going to wait for you to leave. Mm-hmm. I want to see what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be here so you can come back and tell me what I should have done. And I used to get so mad at her. She was at my wedding when I got married a few years back. <laughs> and I remember telling my daughter, like, she's the reason we live in the hood. Get <laughs> <laughs> mad at her. <laughs> if you look at her Facebook, she's like 70 now. She was probably hanging gliding off a cliff in Russia somewhere. Like, she never lost her sense of adventure. She never stopped being this amazing person who travels the world and who does whatever, whatever else. But the thing that she did that I don't have a recollection of anybody else doing was staying in the neighborhood she came from so that kids would know that both and were possible. Yeah. And so that's my story. I'm in the hood. Like, I'm from the hood. I grew up in the hood. Like, one day, yes, I would like to live on a little farmhouse somewhere with chickens running in the backyard. But, you know, I might get there. I might not. But until then, the work is here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have work to do. Like, there's so much to do in terms of how East Oakland eats. And I'm not alone. Like, there are amazing, amazing programs out here. Uh, doing amazing work. I am just one of the many uh, foot soldiers trying to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the Youth Uprising um, Cafe that you managed prior to COVID and now it closed, I assume. Yeah, so that was a project that was kind of, uh, it was just a year or so. It never really got off the ground, but one of the things that we were trying to do, the organization when I joined it, was transitioning, they were changing their ideas a little bit. And so one of the things we were really key on was creating a partnership between the cafe and the farm so that the farm was growing seasonally and we were changing our menu to match it seasonally. Unfortunately, we only got through three seasons <laughs> um. uh, because I had just gotten there and then we weren't financially stable enough in the new model to manage all of the COVID changes. Yeah. Uh, but what we did do since we had started the program, we were already in relationship with the farm. The young people in the various farm science programs at the school had already planted the produce for the spring and the summer, we turned that into a consumer sustainable agriculture program. So we invited families in East Oakland who could afford to pay for groceries to join a CSA. So right now we've got a dozen families who buy 
Progress Weekly. And then we're going to be using that progress to support uh, some of the in-home education programs that we're doing right now. So the young people didn't lose their labor. The produce didn't go to waste. And we've got a dozen families right now enjoying local farm fresh produce uh, that most people are getting shipped, you know, from downstate or from further south from larger farms. But we were able to start one right here. And it's our goal that by September we can move that up to a total of 30. And so the, if there's anybody listening who lives in East Oakland who wants to join the Castlemont Farm CSA, holler back. <laughs> awesome. Um, and that farm, when you say Castlemont, right, that is a school. So is that farm managed by the kids in that school? Yes. yes Which that yes. is amazing. Talk about education hands on. So they've got, they have like four programs back there. They have a program called Fat Lab. There's something called SUDA, uh, which I believe is the Sustainable Urban Design Academy. There's uh, Green Eats, which is a program of Fat Beats Farm, which has a farm lot both at Castlemont and they have a small farm over at Dover Street. Mm -hmm. Raising Roots is over there. I believe that's Jamil's program. So you do, you have this farm collective happening in this one acre lot and all of it is linked to different education and science programs for the students attending Castlemont High School. Amazing. It is. <laughs> it's great to see like there's such an international presence at Castlemont. Like I get to teach outdoor cooking twice a semester with them and I'm always amazed because there's a language and this has always been a language interpreter at each class because there's such an international presence like kids are from everywhere living in East Oakland and so that's also just really great yeah because I always leave learning something like I always like the last time we cooked together we wind up in the midst of the class going into the farm and re-harvesting the same gross the same produce packages because folks knew how to use them differently so then we wind up having the same thing cooked three different ways it was great how do you get kids passionate about vegetables yes farm food <laughs> when they like their cheetos here's the deal. It, is my, yeah, it is my experience no matter where you are no matter what you're doing for me food comes down to two basic things it has to taste good And it has to feel good in your mouth. Mm. Hence, taste and texture. Ah. Right? It's what the company was named for. Um, because the thing that I most recall hating as a child, and I say hate, I don't I'll even allow my daughter to use the word hate, and I always tell her this story. The one thing that I can honestly truly say that I hated was boiled okra. I love okra, but boiled... <laughs> Boiled okra? Maybe not boiled. No. So I have okra going in my backyard right now. Yummy. I, too, have fallen in love with okra over the years. However, as a child, I literally hate it. My grandmother would just boil it in salt water and then put, like, black-eyed peas in it. And it would literally, when you went to pull it up, it would look like slime. It would just look like slime. And there was no way in my like six seven year old brain that no one could convince or anyone could convince me that i wasn't like swallowing mucus <laughs> it was just like no no yep <laughs> it looked like it it felt like it i just couldn't get it down it's like that with roy 
shell, like oysters, clam, I can't do that. That texture, can't do it. Right. So for me, it is about the taste and the texture. Mm. And that's what I tell kids, right? There are just some things you are not going to get down your throat. Like it just is not going to feel right in your mouth. And there are just some things that are going to feel nasty. Mm. But before you determine how nasty something is, which is a very different question than how good is it? How nasty is it? Because now we have to like unpack nasty. So you got to explain how nasty it is, which means you have to eat. I love that. You get the kids to eat it. <laughs> a very different end, right? Um, and then we talk about where, where what you're tasting for, right? Because one of the things that I don't think that a lot of people understand that your tongue has different taste points, like you're tasting different things at different parts of your mouth. So if you really are trying to understand the complexity of any single flavor, you got to let it stay in there for a minute to fully understand how nasty it is. And then what usually happens with young people, they start going, chef, stop saying how nasty it is. It's not that bad. Well, okay, well, what's not so bad about it? Because no one wants to eat anything that's nasty, right? But it's in your mouth. So now you got to decide. And if you haven't spit it out, it's not that nasty. So what's happening? And then what we're usually able to do is in that moment, they've just learned something really valuable, right? They've just learned the complexity of flavor. And then we can talk about things that they've seen happen on TV. Like you've seen people go to wine tasting. They put some wine and they swirl it around in their mouth and then they spit it out. Like, what the hell is the point of that? You ain't going to drink it, right? But they're not drinking it to get drunk, right? They're drinking it to have to taste flavors, right? Mm -hmm. And then I'll give them something that they have eaten their whole life, depending on where we are, right? Usually like a tomato, like something as small as like a little cherry tomato has at least four different notes of flavor in it. But then when they're able to identify it, they've been informed, right? And when we're informed, we're empowered. And then our whole day changes. What a unique approach. And you get kids to express what they're tasting, how it tastes, what's good, what's bad. Right, because the whole goal is this. You don't have to like it. Right. You absolutely don't have to like it. And you don't have to eat it. But you need to be able to explain to me and somebody else what you don't like and that's the lesson that's a life lesson because we very particularly with young people they will throw their hands up in a minute it's dumb it's stupid and oftentimes that's like a really layered response but an adult who doesn't work with young people particularly teens will just dismiss them as being moody or teenagers or just kind of whatever and more often than not there's some information being given to you And usually with food, it's an easier way to kind of extract what's that, right? I mean, some of the things that have really led to openings with young people that have literally been able to had us, you know, have allowed me to call in professionals who could really help them have always happened during cooking lessons. People suppress trauma in different ways and things like trigger you and bring up feelings. And for kids who uh, have not had Uh, nurturing backgrounds, food is a major source of that. And it shows up even in lack or abundance, but it shows up and it shows up incredibly uh, layered ways. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can see that. Food is, in general, a good way to soothe yourself, right? It feels good. So I can see how people go to food to to feel better. Or the opposite, not eat it and then have health yeah, issues. Like, you know, sometimes, I mean, these are the things that I've learned from working with my kids over the years. But, like, you know, you'll see somebody who only eats a certain thing or who only eats, like, a certain kind of food or whatever else. And you make the assumption, or let me use I statements. I traditionally have made the assumption that that's just what you like to eat. But I have learned uh, to ask different questions. And I have learned that um, people can identify themselves as one thing. Like, so say, for example, you can identify yourself as like a vegetarian, right? And then you just eat pasta, nothing else. So just pasta, right? <laughs> and you only eat your pasta with like cheese and olive oil. That's it. Now, that just may be your preference. But it also may be that that is the only food you have ever been fed. And so it's the only food you know. The only food you've ever been fed is some kind of pasta that comes out of a box or some kind of whatever. And that's kind of what you like. And so because you've been in 17 different homes since you were five years old and you're only 17 years old now people just fed you what kept you quiet yeah. right very different position on vegetarianism than someone who makes a choice hmm. so it's food yeah there's a lot of stories behind food and who folks are and, and it's also great because in watching that you know watching a situation where that person gets to garden for the first time and then all of a sudden you're eating cucumbers and tomatoes and peppers and spinach because you grew it mm. right and then to find out a year later that you have created a garden like on the windowsill <laughs> in your apartment and you you know what i mean wow. so just to see the the beauty of it right yeah. to kind of understand what information can do mm. uh what education can do and sort of what happens when you allow people the arena to practice the unknown, right? So if you're uncomfortable with food and you don't have a lot of food history or you don't have a lot of food cooking experience, but somebody's going to give you some food to play with and they're going to hang out with you while you cook it. Um, and they're going to teach you how to cook it in a way that they cook it. There really isn't a lot to lose in that exchange. So I think that makes some of my work easy. <laughs> it's like, all you're giving up is your time. Come on, hang with me, right? And then if it turns out to be rewarding for them, mm -hmm. uh, it's a win-win for everybody. Well, and you're changing people's lives, really, in a sense, because I sometimes it's just it just takes trying something for the first time or prepared in a different way and noticing how good it is, and you your diet could change for the long term and your health. And so I'm just going to challenge the first part of that statement. I don't change anybody's life. The life that I had the capacity and the strength to change was my own, mm -hmm. right? And I made that commitment. What I do and what I do, and that's all I'll do, is I share with people who are willing to listen my experience and what I have learned along the way. People have the power and the choice to make whatever changes most fit them. And I actually think it's it's a bad it's a bad setup, a personal setup 
to to put your personal change on somebody else, right? So what I tell my kids and I tell my students is I got your back and I'll stand with you as you decide if you want to use this information and how you want to use this information. I'll teach you what I got. But how you use it is up to you. Because as somebody who has struggled with weight their whole life, I don't personally want my weight problems to be associated with guilt because I have someone else relying on me to show up differently with my food addictions. Hmm. Right. It's, it's for me, per, I'm just saying, for me, that's pressure. Right. It's not pressure for you to be like, let's go for a walk together on Wednesday. Sarah, I'm waking ass up at six o'clock. Let's go for a walk. That's accountability. Janine, I want to walk more. Will you walk with me? If you walk in and you're saying, okay, I'm going to call you. Let's go. Let's go. But if you call me twice and I don't get up, it's not on you to keep pounding. Right. You feel me? Yeah. It's your, it's your choice. Accountability is I think for folks, I know for, for me, um, being overweight, it's not about the diet. It's it's about your mental. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you as an individual have to make the self-valuing choice that you are ready to change your relationship with food. But that choice starts with education. And you are providing that. So you are opening a door for me to make a better decision. Prior to you, I didn't even know that I had a choice. But with education comes suddenly the ability to choose. Right. And that's really important. Um, And this is why I'm writing a book, right? And that book is called Stories from the Kitchen. There's Healing at the Table. Because one of the things that wasn't available for me when I made the decision to create dietary transformation for myself is there was no guidelines. There was no book that I read 15 years ago that said you don't have to do a weight program or you don't have to do a diet where you're going to cut out like something that sent you that you love to eat. Like I remember trying to do a no carb diet. Like I was the, haven't we all? (laughs) I was the most evil person on the planet. My damn cat stopped coming in the same room. I'm not kidding. Like, I literally tried to live my life without rice and bread. Who the hell was I? <laughs> I'm laughing because I've been there. You're not, exactly. you're not a happy person with, without carbs. It's impossible. Right. I'm saying it. Like, I'm a New Yorker, people. What was I thinking? No bagels in the morning and no fried rice on Friday? What the hell? <laughs> So that was a nightmare for a whole lot of people. <laughs> like a lot, a lot, a lot. So I did. I had to come to a lot. I mean, it's, and I'm not kidding. Like, I am Southern and, and Black. Fried chicken is in my DNA. I swear to you, if somebody does an autopsy, they are going to find a chicken die deep fried in my veins somewhere. So the idea of living my life without these crucial things was insane. But I also had to reconcile that the way I was living my life was causing me to not have any quality of life. Hmm. There had to be a reckoning, right? I had to kind of create that self-exposition within myself. And I found it. I found 
found my middle ground, right? I found that like the things that I could live without that I didn't need every single day. I put myself on like a balance check, you know, like a four or three, like how many days a week am I eating crazy? How many days a week am I eating whatever? Making sure I was drinking enough water every day was really crucial. Like I tell people, if you can make one change, like literally, if you can just make one change in your diet to start, increase your water intake. Because if you can increase the amount of water that you're drinking each day, what it does is it reduces how much sugar you're taking in in other ways, Mm -hmm. right? Because then you're not having that juice. You're not having that soda. You're not having that that iced tea or that lemonade. And just by reducing the sugar and flushing out some of the stuff that's up in there, you start to feel better. And my experience was that when I started to feel better, I wanted to keep feeling better. Like the first time I was able to walk home from the bus stop and not stop, I felt like that scene in Rocky. Like, <laughs> you've not seen Rocky, that very first scene, when he gets up the top of them up stairs, the stairs. Up the stairs, yep. And he's like, <laughs> What I did, like literally, when I could walk my ass that three and a half blocks from the bus stop, get to the bottom of Foothill, and get home without stopping up that hill i did i felt like i was on top of the world and yesterday i watched the sister rock she came down the street in a bike i was like yeah go ahead and i stayed outside my wife said what are you doing i said i'm waiting for her to come back because i know how hard it is to get up this hill (laughs) i do I saw her get stuck. I went outside. I stayed outside and cheered her on so she got over that speed bump. We live on a hill like this, right? And you get over the speed bump and it's like, boom. But you can't get up this shit. <laughs> and she waved. She was like, thank you. Thank you. I was like, been there, been there. Because it is like, and that's the accountability in the structure. Like, that's when you need support. Like, when you are already committed and you're out there and you're about to give up because this shit is hard. I mean, I have sat in the parking lot of White Castle and Burger King in New York City and cried. Like, cried. Like, I want a double whopper so bad right now, but this shit is killing me. I have got to stop eating like this. And sitting in my car in the parking lot crying like, (laughs) I got to make some decisions. I got to make some decisions. And then screaming and cursing like, well, where the hell is the AA program for Burger King? How come I ain't got a 12-step program for Whoppers right now? Where is that? Um, Wow. It's amazing. I share that, right? I share that because just like, and I I tell my kids, it's like, I'm not saying like this is a sport in terms of how you train or whatever, but the mentality is exactly the same, mm-hmm. right? In order to to win your battle with food obsession, you got to look at this shit like you are in training for your life. And it was true. Like I literally had to approach my food obsessions as if I was in training. Like I was like working my way through it. I had mantras, the whole nine. Wow. Um, and then I did. I have a whole thing. I wrote a. <laughs> I have a whole short story about the burger, the, the burger for all occasions. And I wrote this short story at about twelve thirty one night in Brooklyn, New York. 
sitting on the corner of Flatbush Avenue and Lincoln Road across the street from the Wendy's drive-thru on one side of me and the McDonald's drive-thru on the other side of me. I love this. Blackberry at the time, right? I wrote this in my Blackberry. And it was, it was like the autonomy of a burger. And what I had to do was I had to deconstruct all of my cravings in order to come to the understanding that I didn't need to do this. Wow. But what I did need to understand was what was happening for me and what was going on. And then it unpacked a whole bunch of like childhood shit that I had not unpacked. And a lot of loss because this was one of those things that we would do as kids. Like it was one of the things that we were allowed to go do as children in a group. And what I had to come to terms with was that a part of my obsession with holding on to my fast food addictions was how I was holding on to my family. Those were a lot of our memories. And so letting go of those was in another essence of letting go of them. And so I had to go through it all, right? I had to just, I had to let all that out and figure all that out. But that's deep, Sarah. That's deep. Like how you're so strong to take on such a journey most people don't dive that deep well because my whole thing is this we can't understand it if we don't allow ourselves to go through it right yep. and what i understand is that i actually i have a very blessed life right if i think about where i started and where i started from and where i'm at i have an obligation to myself and my community to stand as strong as i can and with me My story is a food story. My story and my struggle is a food story. Some people have stories of abuse and alcohol addiction and parental trauma and, hmm. you know, uh, maybe body deformities or whatever. Everybody's got a story, yeah. right? My story is a food story. And it has hit me in every aspect of my being. But when I look at My people, like, you know, I was just looking at an award show the other day on BET, and I said to my wife, like, how can I be a health and wellness consultant? Like, how can I get into black churches and be like, come on, y'all, we can pray this weight off. We, we, can, we can get into a whole different groove where we're not continuing to heal our pain by feeding ourselves. Like, people are in churches praying to God to heal them internally, and we're still feeding our pain. Mm -hmm. I know I grew up in the church. And so, but again, when I think about my mother and my grandmother, these were not women who would have done anything that would have hurt us. They were living their lives and working and doing everything under the sun to make sure that we had better and more than they did. If they had known that the food they were feeding us, at least in terms of the way that they were cooking it, was detrimental to their health and ours, they would have stopped. I know they would have stopped. Yeah. My grandmother was the first person who ate a raw collard green salad that I cooked. And she, she said, it's a little tough. You need to chop them green and look, you know, but, understood that it didn't need to have lard and fat back and ham hocks and bacon in it to be good. 
I mean, yes, that's delicious, but it doesn't always need to be that way. Like, and if folks would allow celebration foods to be celebration foods and change our daily diet, we could live stronger. Yeah. Wow, Sarah. Yeah, you have a food story. You understand food. You, yeah, you do. Wow. So tell me about your current project, Food and Conversation. Food and Conversations, I'm super excited about. Uh, we've got three folks coming together. So you've got Building Bridges, which is a project that was started three years ago by Zimbabwe Davies, uh, who is also a young man that grew up in the foster care system, but who is now a filmmaker and a producer and a youth advocate. He started a basketball game between local townspeople and some of the young men that uh, live in the supportive housing program that he works at against the Oakland PD. Uh, it was a great success year one. Year two, uh, Oak, the Richmond police joined in. We were able to have two basketball games. This year, uh, the goal was to have two basketball games plus a community forum. And so what happened was because of the whole COVID world and where you don't know when and if the basketball game can happen this year at all, I suggested that he take the idea of the forum that he was going to moderate uh, and that he joined forces with us. We take what has already become the Castlemont CSA project and that we ask our neighbors and friends from various uh, different professional backgrounds to come in and cook with us and to really focus on three key topics of discussion that we would then be able to share with not only with our individual organizations, but on our social media platforms. Um, and so he agreed. And with that, uh, building bridges, food and conversations, uh, there's healing at the table was born. And so that's the building bridges project. That's the Castlemont farm project. And that's uh, a part of one of our food commonwealth projects. There's healing at the table, uh, which I think I mentioned earlier is the subtitle for my book. And so with this, we have representatives coming in from OUSD, child development, youth development, uh, family and emotional trauma, arts and entertainment, literature and poetry. Uh, we have two young people representing both sides of the gender spectrum. Who else is in there? We have a representative for city council. We have our local farmer. And I'm forgetting some key folks. But there's 14 folks in total. Uh, we'll have three conversations. That'll be about 35 to 40 minutes each. That'll have uh, three to five people on each of them. And then we'll have one conversation where everybody will sort of come back in. And that conversation will just be about answering questions that have come in. So each of the three conversations will air folks will post them on their individual sites uh, and their in social media platforms. We'll wait about a week. Uh, we'll gather all of the questions and then all 12 participants, myself and Zimbabwe, will come back together and we'll answer some of those community questions. The questions that we will be tackling in our conversations is what are people doing in terms of self-care, right? Either from their organizational lenses or from their own personal lenses. How are we addressing issues around public safety? in the ongoing wake of the pandemic. Uh, what are folks' thoughts around uh, how we stay safe and what's happening in the things around childcare and our school systems and our nurseries and all that stuff. And then lastly, what are folks 
doing in terms of supporting uh, the voter registration drive and getting the vote out and what can we offer our communities around resources and access to making sure that folks are doing what they need to to make sure their votes are cast and counted in this upcoming election. So those are our three questions. The four areas of cooking that we will be exploring, uh, we will be doing a vegan bibimbap, uh, all from our garden produce. And so with that, we'll be pickling things like radish and beets and onions and squash. Uh, we're making some kimchi. So all that'll happen with that. We're doing a make your own pasta so that for the folks who have kids at home, they'll learn how to make pasta from scratch. And then we'll roll that out and we'll make some ravioli. Also stuffing them with the herbs and the greens that we're getting from the farm. We'll be doing a little lesson on smoking for the folks who want to increase their outdoor barbecue work. Uh, we've got some hickory, some apple and some pecan wood. So we'll be sharing that with folks and we'll be setting up smokers. People can learn how to smoke fish or tofu, their choice. And then lastly, there'll be a class on sauces, spreads and marinade. So we have an abundance of things growing at the farm parsley and cilantro and basil and parsley and just stuff so we're going to make some sofrito and some aiolis so that's all exciting so those will be the four classes three sessions and then we'll see what happens but again the goal really is to take those everyday conversations that you wind up having with people and just making them more public to the community and hopefully engaging in the larger conversation Where can people access those conversations? Right now, you can stay current with us on our Instagram page at the Food Common Will. And that's Will spelled W-E-A-L. The link to the upcoming series is in the bio on our Instagram right now. There's also a link there to donate for folks who are interested in helping to support the project. It costs about $25 to supply a family with a box of fresh produce for the week. So if well, folks take positions to help with that, uh, we would like to be able to provide, we appreciate it. Uh, if you're in a position and can donate more, don't let us stop. But our goal really is to just be able to fill the need. Uh, we understand probably here in the East, more than a lot of folks, that resources are getting tight. People are losing their jobs. Emergency food needs are greater. And we really want to Folks who are dependent on emergency food resources, we also don't want them to not have access to fruits and vegetables. Just because your finances are limited and your access is limited because we live in a food desert doesn't mean that you have no choice. Mm -hmm. So we really want people to remember that while it is limited, we do have some choice. Uh, and we have a whole acre of fruits and vegetables growing right here in our East Oakland backyard that is accessible. This also sounds like an opportunity that people that have plenty of resources could support a family that way, right? By them getting fresh food like right. that. And this is what, I mean, and this is what I say for folks who can, yeah. right? I mean, I know for our family, when I buy a box of produce, there's three of us here. We have fruits and vegetables that last us for 10 days. $25 to help a family support their food for 10 days to me is 
is a reasonable investment. It's two dollars and fifty cents a day. Yeah. Um, I can't even get a cup of coffee for two dollars and fifty cents a day. For sure. And I got to stand outside and wait thirty minutes for it anyway. <laughs> Especially in Rockridge. <laughs> You know, one of the things that has happened in this pandemic is that for a lot of people, when they woke up on March 17th, 2020, the question was not so much of what's happening in the world, but the question was something really, really concrete. How am I going to feed my kids? And so that's the call that I'm trying to answer for every mom or dad that shows up and says, I need help feeding my kids. We want to be able to help. So if you can help us help them out. Yes, we will get the word out. I will link to your, I will link to Instagram and then your website. Yeah. So we have a link to donate at our, at our Instagram page, which is probably the easiest. You can click on the bio and then there's a link right there to our current website with a donation link to this project there. Perfect. You can also donate at zdavies.com which is our Building Bridges partner. There is a link on that website to donate to the Food Commonwealth Project as well. And that project is Building Bridges, Food and Conversations. There's healing at the table, y'all. Awesome. And your book's in the works? So my book is in works. This is the nervous part of my existence. Yes, I'm ready. I'm looking for representation, whatever that means. Like, I'm ready to talk to. It's finished. Like, it's there. I mean, I know I need to edit it and whatever, but I need an agent. I need a publisher, all that. And I think the hardest thing for me, even though I've been living this story actively, I have been teaching it as I have gone along. Um, there's something very concrete about chronicling the lot that first nine years of what it was like to lose half of your body physically and all all of the emotional uh, roller coasters that came with that and so one of the things that is really trippy for me because i wrote it as i went along right i would write these stories and i would kind of keep this journal and as I have put it into a larger story, my weight loss transformation story, I've had to just take stock of all of the things that I've had to let go along this journey that wasn't serving me and how much my relationship with food and what I ate, where I ate it and how I ate it spoke to so many different layers of the pain that I was carrying. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to be on this side of that story and, and to also just be like, OK, like, OK, knowing that, like, I have a food addiction. I have a food problem. Like, I'm going to be a fat girl in my heart forever. It doesn't matter what my waistline says. Like, and that as a fat girl, I have to realize that I became a fat girl kind of without my knowledge or my consent. And that says a lot about where I was born and who I was born as. So finding my way to pride is the story that I'm happy to tell now um, mm -hmm. because I honestly and truly believe that 10 years ago, this would have been a different story, but being on this side of the weight loss, having been on this side of the weight loss for as long as I have been, but 
understanding that I'm always going to carry that weight in my heart and that it's a part of my education and my history gives me a very strong foundation to stand on. And it allows me to infuse people with like passion about the fact that we can eat, uh, we can eat well, <laughs> we can eat well all the time, yeah. um, but we can be healthy and we don't have to carry around hundreds of additional pounds that are like breaking our bodies in different ways. We can drop this mantra that I'm a big girl and it doesn't hurt me because that's bullshit. <laughs> or that there's only one way, either, you know, I'm skinny and I have to sacrifice or I'm big and I'm just going to be unhealthy. I mean, there is a middle way. Right. And that's the difference. Um, I am a big girl. I am always going to be a big girl. My daughter is a big girl, right? But big girls mean that like when I go like this, like that's my bone, right? I can't do nothing with the fact that that, right? You know, we're tall, we're going to be big boned. That's a very different thing. Everybody's body mass index is different. If you're five foot seven and you're whatever, and your body mass index is different from somebody that's five foot seven that was born in a different culture in a different country, right? Understand that. I'm not suggesting that for myself and anybody else that you try to strive for any sort of magazine image of an ideal way. I'm saying you need your heart and your vitals to be on point. Have that conversation with your doctor. If you don't have a doctor, let's get you into a local clinic. Like, find out what 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 your personal wellness chart looks like, and then get there. Hmm. And my personal wellness chart is not going to look anything like anybody else's. And understand that, and then get there. Right, get to the point in yourself where you're happy and healthy and able to live and move in your body. That's it. I don't have a scale. Like there's not a scale in my house and there will never be. And there's only one mirror. We have one full length mirror in this house, except for the ones in the bathroom, the brushing teeth, whatever. It's not about body in a way. Body in a way that is sustainable for your health and your strength. Mm. And so for me, It's about learning how to get there and be there and then being in a lifestyle that supports that. The thing about diets is that you go on a diet, you lose this weight, and then you go back to your life and then the diet, is out. the, the weight is bad. That's bad for your heart. <laughs> that's horrible for your heart. Yeah. Your heart to go up and down, that's horrible, right? That's what people don't realize. Losing weight to fit the outfit and then going back bouncing up and down like that's the stuff i want folks to get out of like find your comfort zone and then roll in it that's what we're going for well and you you know you have done this you've done you did the journey you did the, the investigation and the research and the trial and the error you've done it and you have to show for yourself that you have been able to keep it off that's the best example that you can set but that's what i hope the book does right the book is about a journey i got all these ceramic turtles in my house and i got all these pigs like you'll figure out the analogy at some point right <laughs> okay <laughs> like i eat like a pig i move like a turtle oh okay okay like, cool um, but the notion is just that dietary transformation 
takes time, it takes discipline, and it takes a commitment to yourself to do and be different. That is not a quick fix. Mm-hmm. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. Like when I share these stories, the stories from the kitchen, right? That's the name of the book because I share these stories. I'm not bullshitting you when I say I've had meltdowns of sitting in fast food parking lots crying because I know I shouldn't be eating this, but this is what I want to be eating right now. Like that's a coming to Jesus moment or the fact that I'd be cooking vegetarian and vegan meals. I'm working on this farm. I'm getting, I would leave to run to the market to grab something, stop at the fast food place on the way back, eat the food in the car before I get back to the farm table. Hmm. Like, that's how deep my addiction was. And I would go to therapy, and my therapist would laugh like, you're kidding. And I'm like, no, I'm not. But people would look at me like, you're educated, <laughs> like you're smart. You were seriously not sitting at home tripping over. And I'm like, yeah, I am. Because this whole notion of body image, you, you fit into this body image. So you eat one way in public go home and go eat or you eat in the middle of the night or you eat like out of the refrigerator like pit that because nobody can see you the shit's not happening i talk about all that because those were all of the things i had to unpack for myself and understand that what was i feeding and that's the part that i i have to like emphasize like we had to unpack what we're feeding takes a lot of courage, too, to share all that with the world. That's the scary part, because I, technically I haven't yet, right? <laughs> well, you're pretty open here. <laughs> no, yeah, like the book is going to, hopefully the book will come out, right? And then, like, it'll just be that. Like, it won't just be my classrooms or my workshops. It'll be my trainings. It'll be whoever picks it up. But what I hope more than anything is, like, you know, like one of the things that, like, When I was going through a divorce, uh, somebody gave me a book by a woman named Debbie Ford. And the book was called Spiritual Divorce, Mm. right? I've heard of Debbie Ford, yeah. Brilliant, right? But one of the things that I remember thinking as I was reading this book, well, because it allowed you to see all the things that went wrong in these relationships. And it kind of like if people could go back and unpack what they did and all the things that we learn about ourselves in retrospect. And so one of the things that my book does is it does just that. It's a continual reflection. I'm here with you, but I have to go back and learn where this started. So we're constantly going back and forth. Like there's a whole story about vegetables. And when I learned that, oh, wait, I actually don't have a history with vegetables. The two vegetables that I love are technically like grains, corn (laughs) and potatoes. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) Like potato is technically a vegetable, but it's kind of high in starch. Yeah. And corn, you can't even fake it. But who knew? You know what I mean? Yep. So when you go to deconstruct your first meal and you realize that there are actually no vegetables on your plate because you've got chicken, corn, and potatoes, oh, it's a it's a complete re-education. Again, my goal for anybody, and I 
definitely pray that people who are struggling with their weight, who are living in impoverished situations, somehow get a hold of it and read it and use it. I think anybody growing up or living in America who has been subjected to the American diet for the majority of their lives have the same issues around hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol, and obesity. Mm. Our problem is an American diet problem. Once our food got moved from the kitchen into factories and warehouses and got put on shelves and into frozen freezers and we started eating things that had the shelf-stable lives, we started literally creating food as cargo and luggage. Like, I laughed. Last 10 pounds was so hard to lose because it was like McDonald's from when I was seven. <laughs> like, I was convinced. This is a half of a seven. I can't get rid of this shit. It's, on my lo- it's like cemented in here. And my kids got joking, right? And so we did. We went through a drive through and bought some McDonald's french fries and we put them in the van that we drive around in for programming. And we left it in there for six weeks. <gasps> It didn't mold. It didn't discolor. All that happened was it got cold. And they couldn't believe me, right? They would be like, you, they still not in there. I'm like, open the back. They're still right there. <gasps> and so what that proved to them, because they thought I was crazy, and I also took like a glass and put like sugar and salt and like vegetable oil in it. This is all of the amount of sugar, salt, and fat in this meal. And so we kept those two things on the counter for six weeks. The sugar and salt never dissolved in the oil. Hmm. Like it gradually kind of just solidified and packed in. And then those French fries never actually discolored or molded in that packaging. And so what that allowed them to see is like, these are your arteries, right? So when you say people get like, They got to go in and get like a quadruple bypass. They got to get like a, like, this is what happens. Like your arteries get filled up with this kind of fat and then you can't get stuff through. Right. So if you're eating a food and it can sit here for this long, how long do you think it's sitting in your body? But what it does is it allows people to have information. That doesn't say that you're never going to go out and eat commercially bought French fries again, but it might change how frequently you eat them or it might change the size of the package you buy because you now know it's gonna be different or you might eat something differently with it hoping that your body is gonna like flush it out differently and then that's what we teach we teach like eat or something raw with that eat a smoothie that's just fruit and vegetables like eat something that's gonna help your body push that through or counter for it you know, and I have kids that said, I still go buy like that raw kale and just throw a handful on my salad. Yeah, there you go. But just that, like, because one meal a day or one food item a day is better than no food items a day. Nice. One extra bottle of water a day is better than no extra water a day. Because that means that's something else you couldn't eat and your body got something it needs. Mm-hmm. So it's just that. But yeah, so the book is about sharing all that, what it meant to go from eating fast food every single day to hustling kale right now. Like, what did it mean (laughs) to drink a quart of Diet Coke at a time to like, now, you know, we only drink water or tea or whatever. But it didn't happen overnight. Like,
like it wasn't a quick fix. And I think that's what, if I want anybody to take anything away from the lessons is that if you are overweight, if you are battling health issues, whether you inherited them or whether they're creeping up because of your diet and your exercise, none of that happened overnight. You did not go to bed on Tuesday and wake up with high blood pressure and diabetes on Wednesday. Um, it didn't work like that. Right. So like in the same way it took time and abuse to get your body to a place, it's going to take time and love to get your body out of it. Like if you've been eating, like for me, if at 35, I've had three and a half decades of eating 5,000 calories a day, chilling. I'm not going to all of a sudden, at like in three months from now, be different. I'm not. And so like even in the book, like I talk about the gastric bypass. Like there was a point, you know, in the 90s, early early 2000s, like that was a thing. Like everybody was just going and having their bodies cut up and like having all this weight loss done. And it was like, you know, I went through all the, the psychological reports and all that. And what I gathered in that was that that was like a jump start. You were going to have to learn everything that you needed to learn about keeping that weight off if you wanted to keep it off anyway. Not just a shortcut. For, right. So I decided like, don't, the shortcuts aren't going to work. Mm -hmm. Like, Learn the skills, do the research, discover who you are as an eater, gain some heartfelt understanding of what your personal relationship what food is and then create your food story but it's it's delusional to have a food story that you live and you're putting that food in your body every single day and your body and your health is showing it but the verbiage that comes out of your mouth says something completely different it's like well I could tell people I don't eat some way, but me eating it, you know, it was like making vegetarian meals and being like this at home and then going out and eating an apple. Okay, so yeah, we could eat tofu and, you know, raw greens at home, but I'm going to Applebee's and ordering fried shrimp, fries, french fries, a Caesar salad with Caesar dressing and like, you know, fried chicken on it. It's going into the same body. Hmm. So that, like the book just talks about finally coming to terms with my own hypocrisies, my own contradictions, and finding a balance. Yes, I still allow myself one fun food a day. Like I have, we have fun food Fridays. That's our, that our day of the week to have whatever fun food, completely enjoy it, indulge in it, like eat as much as you want, hang out. And now we have the whole weekend to go burn that shit off. Mm-hmm. That's a very different thing than eating it on a Monday or a Tuesday and being at a desk all week or sitting in all week. Like, so for me, it was like coming to terms when, when and how I'm going to like enjoy what I'm enjoying. How am I going to change my relationship with food? So I never have to feel like I'm in lack. I never have to feel that I'm denying myself. I never have to hear myself say things like, Oh no, I can't have that. I'm on a diet. Mm -hmm. Please shoot me first. <laughs> um, 
Like I never wanted, I never wanted that to be a part of my experience. Like it's one thing if you have an allergy or something doesn't like set in your system. But I personally never wanted to be in the life where it was like I was denying myself food. So I had to come to a modest food story and then learn how to have the food that was important to me and how to have it be something that healed and nourished me and not something that made me sick. Sarah, you need a YouTube channel. <laughs> you have so much to share. I could see a serious you helping conversations. Let's see how that goes. Yes, can you take that on YouTube? Well, what we're gonna do, we don't. We're learning, so we're gonna get all the footage, and then uh, David, who does video editing, is gonna see if he can put it into some like little three-minute like snippets or something we'll keep you posted <laughs> you need it you we have no idea we have absolutely no idea that's okay All you're doing it is that it's gonna be fun like i'll send you some farm pictures like yeah so produce right now I, i'm so like, i'm right we're getting off the phone um i'm pickling beets i'm pickling radish today Aww. um i'm making green onion aioli and I am making roasted chili salsa. We've got green tomatoes, tomatillos, uh, bell peppers that like are only this big. And then all of these like green Italian long peppers that we don't know if they're hot or sweet. (laughs) Somebody's going to (laughs) try. get the word out we have to spread the word you have an an amazing mission and passion and we need to we need to get you out to the community if you know anybody in publishing hit me up with an email i've got like a sample to send out um and even if it's just conversation like you know as a first-time writer like i don't know how the system works it would be interesting just to kind of troubleshoot what should i be thinking about like what should i know what should what what should i not know i don't because it's not a cookbook like and that was a part of the thing there's tons of recipes in it but it's not a cook it's not a recipe in the sense of like take this do da 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 it's like okay so let's say your favorite thing to eat is lasagna Mm -hmm. and you have your favorite lasagna recipe right i just give you like a little grid on how to like convert a couple of those really key like fat things Mm -hmm. into like like other alternatives that are like lower in cholesterol or lower in saturated fat this was awesome all right so i have talked your ear off no you have like you've entertained me you have (laughs) you have opened my horizon in, in many ways i just i love it thank you so much what a story thank you <laughs> i um yeah, 
we're willing to like listen to use your platform to help us get our word out I of course that a lot um thank you so much yep all right let me know when you're here i will thank you